Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 301, and today's guest is David Campbell, CEO and co-founder of Tropic. Tropic provides data, tools, and services to automate SaaS procurement for tech-forward companies, saving them money and time. The company has raised $65 million since August of 2021, and Insight Partners led its most recent round of funding. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a very open and honest conversation with David about his history with addiction and how he overcame it and ultimately channeled his tendencies into a superpower, David's background story, and how he started out as a novelist and what led him into sales in the tech industry and helped grow a startup from the ground level to over $80 million in revenue, why the procurement industry was ripe for disruption, the story of Tropic and how they are bringing transparency to the process of purchasing software for companies and why their business is set up to thrive in any type of economic conditions, lessons learned around building out a marketing function, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then what are you doing to build out your company's employment brand? If you don't have a content strategy, then it is highly likely that you're just flying under the radar. The good news is that we can help. A subscription to VentureFizz includes a content playbook for sharing all the details on your company, culture, and hiring process. We leverage all formats of storytelling to include videos, podcasts, employee profiles, and so much more. Reach out to Info at VentureFizz to get all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with David. David, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, yeah, definitely, Keith. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because obviously the team uh, and the company that you're building at Tropic, you guys are obviously in a market that you know your platform uh, is is obviously really, really useful and helpful for companies right now. So we're going to talk about that in detail, what you guys are up to. But um, you know, th- there was a post that you shared on LinkedIn that I just thought was incredibly transparent about you as a person. And I think it would be hard pressed to find somebody that either isn't dealing with their own struggles, a family member, a friend that is dealing with, you know, things that are challenging that, and that's addiction. But you talked about a story that affected you, yet you were able to channel your tendencies into what you consider your greatest superpower and, you know, build a successful company that we're going to talk about. So I thought that would be a good starting point to talk about, like, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs that it doesn't have to be addiction, but, you know, how do you channel energy into a superpower. Yeah, definitely. So I think that the first thing that's so insidious about addiction and about alcoholism is there's this feeling of, if you're in the grip of it, um, and I most certainly was for many years of my life, uh, it led me to jail, it led me to rehab, it led me to, you know, sleeping in my car, it led me to really dark places. And yet, behind those experiences, there was always this feeling of, yeah, but what could you possibly do without it? How are you going to live without it? What would your life be like? And I think that one of my reasons in choosing to go public with my story is I know a number of entrepreneurs who say that, you know, yeah, but I need it to do my job. Um, I need it to be effective. You know, how am I going to be as dialed in without it? How am I going to balance my life without it, whether it's alcohol or a drug or whatever it is, right? And one of the first things that I always tell those people is like, I used to think that too. And I could not actually become successful until I put the drugs and the alcohol down. So, you know, it's this myth, you know, whatever that part of our brains is that tells us I need this chemical to be my best self, or I need this chemical to survive. It's very bestial, very primal uh, in nature. It's lying to you. Uh, you, you actually can go significantly further without it. And that was why I chose to to do that post because, you know, entrepreneurs tend to have a lot of personality traits in common uh, across issues like mental illness, issues like addiction. There's a disproportionately high percentage of CEOs who are diagnosed bipolar. I happen to be one of those CEOs also, and I, you know, get treatment for that. And it doesn't get talked about much, even though it's this very wide sweeping trend. I think in all respects, and but especially really in addiction. I think that there has been more and more writing done recently about mental health and entrepreneurs, uh, but rarely do I see anything out there about substance abuse. And I know 
personally many people that are struggling. And if I personally know many people that are struggling as entrepreneurs, but outside of entrepreneurship as well, imagine how many people I don't know, right? Like, like you said it yourself, almost everybody can think of somebody, whether it's a family member or a friend. And, uh, and those are just the tip of the iceberg that we see. There's many people suffering totally in silence. And, uh, and I thought, I felt that it was very important to say like, Hey, first you can put down drugs and you can put down alcohol. Cause if I could do it, you could do it. Cause I was a, you know, very, you know, very, very low rock bottom kind of, uh, of, of a drug addict and alcoholic. And today I'm not right. So if I can do it, you can do it. But beyond, if I can do it, you can do it. There are traits that kind of, you know, tend to drive addiction, compulsive behaviors, right? Like it was definitely a hallmark of my active addiction that when everybody else wanted to go home, I would keep going. Right. And I would keep going until the sun came up. I would keep going until you could hear the birds chirping, like, you know, all those things. And what I found is that in recovery, that's still true. When other people go home, I can keep going and I can apply that energy and that obsess, that obsession and that compulsion to things that might actually be productive. When I was, you know, coding the prototype for Tropic, I stayed up for like three days straight coding. Like, and most people wouldn't do that. Am I saying it's healthy to do that? Certainly not. But it wasn't hard for me to do that because I have that pathway in my brain already, right? Like when I wanted to to get good at drums, you know, I could play drums for 12 hours a day until I was good because that thing that tells me to stop uh, doesn't exist. That thing that tells other people to stop, I should say, doesn't exist for me in my brain. So it's all about like how you're channeling that energy. Like I'm often asked, like, do you have any regrets? Would you change anything? And my answer to that question, quite honestly, is absolutely not because all of the strengths that are propelling me in my life right now, enabling me to move decisively on getting married to my wife, on having a baby, on starting a company, on getting, you know, to, you know, 300 employees or whatever we are today, the the tenacity that I have for doing those things comes very naturally to me because it's the same way that I used to get high. So that was kind of, you know, long answer to a short question, but you know, I think that what we perceive as our greatest weaknesses can become our greatest strengths when you just kind of flip the coin to the other side. And that's been my experience with addiction and recovery. Well, kudos for you to for being open and transparent about that and for recognizing how to leverage that to be, you know, who you are. Cause it, you know, it's the foundation of who you are, but you're just channeling that energy into things that are obviously very productive. So kudos to you. Thank you. All right, let's uh, rewind the clock. So where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah, so I grew up on a, a cattle ranch in the Mojave Desert, believe it or not, a place called uh, Kemper Campbell Ranch. It's this piece of land that's been in my family for a couple generations. And we started out with this with this property basically as a guest ranch. It was like a resort and like Hollywood types would come up from Los Angeles. It's about a two hour drive over the uh, the mountains into the high desert where the ranch was and they would come like unwind and stuff. And uh, there's a cool anecdote about that where this movie came out recently called Mank, uh, David Fincher movie, I think, might be wrong, uh, but whoever made it, you know, this movie Mank came out and it was about Herman Mankiewicz who co-wrote Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. And uh, a big piece of the script was actually written by him on the ranch because he was himself an alcoholic and my great grandmother who was the boss of the ranch, but had this like ranch wide prohibition. So people would go there to dry out. And this guy was a part of that. And they shot part of the movie on the ranch, which is pretty cool. cool. But with the, with the sole exception of Tropic, every generation of Campbell's has run whatever business they launched into the ground. And the guest ranch was no exception and, you know, ran it into the ground, closed its doors. And we still have the land though. It's, you know, I think pretty much losing money today, but it's beautiful. So that's where I grew up. And it, it has a lot to do with how I grew up because there's not a lot to do in the Mojave Desert uh, at first glance. And then you dig deeper and you realize there's tons to do. It's just not the conventional kid stuff. Like there's no playing ball with the other neighborhood kids because there's no other neighborhood kids. There's no cul-de-sac, right? There's no uh, parks or any of that stuff, but there is one big expanse. So I think that really drove me into getting very creative to find fun. And I think that that is a value that was instilled at me by necessity from an early age that has kept with me over the years. You know, we would build Fords, create games. When I got older, we did stuff that we probably shouldn't be doing. Like we'd 
make Molotov cocktails and light them and throw them at boulders. And we'd find like derelict mattresses in the desert and we'd tie them behind my buddy's truck and ride the mattresses through the desert and stuff like that. And, you know, we had to kind of create our own fun. We didn't have the advantage of having lots of resources around us, but uh, that, you know, I think there's entrepreneurial tendencies in that. Um, I made a, a, a rock museum with rocks that I had found and I built the museum myself and it was this like room and I charged entry and stuff like that. So, you know, when you don't have a suburb or a city around you, you kind of have to get creative. And I'm really grateful for that in hindsight. So what led you to study English literature at UC Berkeley? Yeah, so uh, my whole life, I thought I was either going to be a professional musician or professional novelist. Never in a million years did I think I'd be, you know, a tech entrepreneur and certainly not a tech entrepreneur disrupting the procurement sector. That was like definitely not on my bingo card. Um, so, you know, to become better at writing, you have to be better at reading. I studied English lit at Berkeley with the plan of writing a novel after college and and making that be the next great American novel and that was going to be my future. Uh, so that's what I did, but it wasn't the next great American novel. You know, I moved up to a cabin, um, Humboldt County, California, Northern California, and uh, didn't have fun or internet for a while. And I produced a, a 400 page novel that was objectively bad, but I think had, you know, moments of brilliance to it. I think there's probably another book in me somewhere someday post-tropic, but it definitely taught me a lot actually in a roundabout way about entrepreneurship, the experience of setting your own vision, setting your goals. Nobody told me to to do that. In fact, many people tried to tell me not to. Uh, they were like, you know, go get a job. And uh, and I didn't listen. And, you know, I, I definitely felt very existentially fulfilled at the end. And I knew, you know, maybe this isn't going to be the way that I make money, but the way that I do make money ultimately is going to have to be somehow unconventional. It's going to have to require the creative side of my brain, which is where I'm most engaged. And I'm going to need to be my own boss ultimately, which is, you know, what I was while I was writing the book. So, you know, good learnings came out of that experience regardless. But to paint the picture, like, it's not like you did this for a couple of weeks. This was like a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did you tr actually try to get it published? I sent it around to a, a couple people. I think that I was expecting it to be perfect. Um, big learning for me. They say your first book usually sucks. And even if you write a great book, it's not perfect. People have to edit books, you know, very extensively to make them good. And I just wasn't up for all that. Uh, you know, I sent it to a couple people. I got some edits and I sort of like lost the plot, I guess. I felt, you know, a little disconnected. I was like, but I already did this. I should be done now. And I wanted to go do the next thing. So that that just kind of, you know, it taught me, I had to go through that experience to learn that that wasn't my calling, if that makes sense. Um, so I didn't push hard to get it published because first I had to get it edited and I didn't want to invest the work necessarily in getting it edited. I just came to believe that it probably sucked. Maybe it didn't, I don't know, but uh, didn't do anything with it and learned that, you know, there was something else out there for me that checked some of those same boxes, but wasn't, you know, being holed up in a cabin. All right. So how'd you get involved in the tech industry? I knew that tech was, you know, I talked to a couple smart people in my life and they kind of identified for me what I couldn't see for myself, which was that entrepreneurship might be a good avenue. And if you pay attention, tech is the only avenue for entrepreneurship that makes any sense to somebody in their early 20s. You know, that was where all of innovation was happening. It was where, you know, the wild runaway success stories were happening. And, you know, I saw tech is really kind of the American dream, right? It's like, I'm going to go out there and chart my own course and, you know, do some manifest destiny on this category and take ownership of it. And then, you know, launch this business to the moon. So it was very, you know, interesting to me. And to get in, I thought I would get in through writing because that was kind of what my background was. And I was writing for a couple of hip hop magazines that had kind of a tech bent. And I was writing for, um, an agency that had some tech clients and the agency thing was ultimately kind of what launched my career because we were covering, you know, B2B companies that thought they needed a blog to sell their products or uh, like even there was like audio uh, equipment type companies that thought they needed a blog to sell their products and they were not actually doing inbound marketing. There was no real, you know, inbound machine on the back of the content, they were only focused on traffic. They thought traffic was what mattered the most. And so I figured out how to hack traffic. I would just go to Reddit every morning and see like what GIF is ranking number one at 6 a.m. 
uh, let's build a post about that regardless of what it is that the client sells and you know we'll rank number one in Google and you know we'll turn it into a listicle with six other GIFs that are kind of roughly on the same theme. And uh, and that hack worked really, really well. We got, you know, tremendous amounts of traffic. Clients started ranking number one for things very quickly. SEO is very gameable in those days in a way that it's not today. And, you know, that ultimately really pissed off some of the clients uh, to, you know, to what you have to say, all you asked for was traffic and we got it for you, right? So, uh, but it also kind of like made some waves in New York Tech, it eventually led to a connection between me and the CEO of the company where I really got started, a bar tech company called BounceX at the time that's now called Bunderkind. And I assumed that I'd be doing content because that was what I had been doing. And instead, I landed in a customer success role. And then two months later, I got moved into sales. And I think that was when I found kind of founder market fit. Uh, sales proved to really be my calling. I was the first sales hire there. Uh, sub $100,000 in revenue, you know, 15th employee, and they had product market fit. I found kind of founder market fit and started to really scale with the business. I became the top sales rep, really learned the craft of sales, then learned go to market, got promoted to VP of sales, grew the business. We scaled from roughly zero to eight, you know, above $80 million in revenue. And then shortly after I left $100 million in revenue. So I really learned almost everything in a hyper concentrated hypergrowth format at that company. Um, we saw it all. We saw selling to startups. We saw selling to mid-markets. We saw selling to enterprises. And I also, as a consequence of the rapid growth and the move up market that that company was experiencing, I saw procurement people for the first time. Uh, procurement was a word that I had literally never heard before. And when I got my first exposure to the procurement guy, I was like, wow, this is a totally unpenetrated business function. You know, I'm talking to a guy that is wearing a suit from the early 1980s and has a pen and a notebook and there's no tech, there's no software. And, uh, you know, that was really interesting to me and ultimately really compelling. It, you know, obviously here I am with a company that's focused on this problem. I didn't know that was going to be where I was going to end up, but I did know the very first time I spoke to a procurement team, like this is the underdog. This team is totally disadvantaged. All of the tech and investment is going to the sales side and the buy side has a pen and a notebook. And I'm like, that kind of imbalance is something that I think is very interesting. I always want to be fighting in defense of the underdog. And I didn't know it at the time, but procurement would ultimately become the underdog that I was fighting in defense of. So that was uh, how I got into tech. So you had a, a stint at Microsoft, but what's, you know, what led you down the path of, of starting Tropic and meeting your co-founder and how did it all come together? Yeah, so my co-founder was at that startup. He had a very similar trajectory. And this startup was at the time, New York Tech was a lot smaller at the time. Like, you know, Silicon Valley would like laugh at New York technology in 2012. You know, there were, you could count the SaaS companies on one hand, but this company, uh, Boonderkind, it's now called, was really a darling of that community. We were like the runaway success story in New York Tech at the time. MarTech was the, the hottest category on the planet. So it was a really good place to learn. It was really, really formative. And my co-founder had basically the exact same experience and same trajectory as I did, uh, moving up the ranks of the sales team, but he did it through the operations team. So he was a, a bank consultant. He came in, started as an individual contributor, you know, blink twice and he's the VP of operations. So he and I would already collaborate because operations own procurement uh, and he had to build the procurement function for this company. And the platform that we eventually built at Tropic was really what he needed. And he went to the market and realized it didn't exist. Like when he had to create procurement as a category, he's like, where's the procurement CRM? You know, where's Salesforce for buying stuff? And there was no such thing. And B2B tech companies didn't care about procurement, didn't even care about saving money uh, if you rewind the clock a couple of years, right? So he and I worked together really regularly there. Um, one thing that was really important, I think, ultimately to us partnering together is we disagreed like famously all the time. Like I was under the gun from the board to sell bigger and bigger deals. And he was under the gun to retain and drive efficiency. And he wanted to keep the price points down because we knew the bigger the price, the higher the churn risk. And I wanted the price to go up. So, you know, we'd yell at each other, we'd argue, uh, we'd learn how to disagree and commit at that company, which has proven to be one of our superpowers as a co-founding team here. So that was how we met. Um, I left 
you know, there was a chief revenue officer above me, my equity invested, I was ambitious, I left, I went to Microsoft as a global business manager. And I witnessed, as I kind of alluded to, so much inefficiency and in how companies would buy. And it started when I started at, at Vinderkin with startups who had no process, right? Marketer wants to buy something, marketer goes and buys it. There's no approval, there's nothing, right? Uh, we have all this VC money we just raised, let's go buy some stuff. And then we move up market and that was where I met the procurement team. And these teams were, you know, it's not their fault. They were spun up to buy things like desk chairs and real estate and buttons and zippers for clothing manufacturers that we were selling to. And then one day someone was like, now you need to buy this million dollar marketing automation tool. So go figure it out. This huge, you know, disconnect, right? And then, so I go to Microsoft and I was covering the Wall Street sector. My territory was $500 million in banks and capital markets, biggest companies on earth. Some of Microsoft's biggest customers. And this renewal was coming up for one of the customers in my patch at Microsoft. And the sales rep is like, we're not getting anywhere with this. Can you get on the phone with these guys? So I got on the phone and talked to the biggest procurement team, right? Like this is the as big as it gets, massive public company, 200,000 people. And I realized that at this level, it's just as dysfunctional, if not even more dysfunctional than the mid-market. And this guy was like, look, we really just need help, man. Like I am looking at this order form from Microsoft. There's 300 products in it. Uh, I don't know what these products are. I don't know who bought this stuff. Like, I know that we don't need all these seats because we had layoffs. Like, this just doesn't make any sense for us. Uh, can you guys figure something else out? And I was like, I'll try. You know, they'd missed their opt-out date. And I escalated it and talked to the Microsoft leadership team. Is like, hey, these guys are a mess. Like, I think if you want to get this account to be big, you're going to have to give them a break this year because they have no idea what's going on. And uh, and Microsoft, you know, obviously big public company, their own targets to hit was like, not our problem. Uh, it's not our fault that they're bad at buying software, right? So this company that had all these tools they didn't need, seats they didn't need, overpriced, total mess, got locked into this deal that they couldn't afford and they had to lay off more people just to pay the bill. Mm -hmm. And so that for me was like the time. Uh, I realized a couple of things. One, big corporate is not for me. I like to be steering a pirate ship where I can be nimble and I can move fast and we can make impact and big public companies, it's hard, right? And two, this problem that I'd identified affected every company of every size. It affected the tiny startups I started with and the biggest public companies on earth. And when I think about what makes a healthy company, and what kind of a company culturally I want to run. The cultural piece, number one, I want to be in the service of the underdog, like I said. And I believe that we found an underdog in procurement. Some of the smartest, most capable people on the planet, just underappreciated and woefully ill-equipped with technology. Two, the total addressable market needs to be basically bottomless. There needs to be a trillion-dollar opportunity. And when I think about this space, you know, Software is going nowhere but up. Software, despite the last two years, it doesn't matter. Software is, runs the world now. And every company that's not a software company will be a software company over time. And this seismic shift has been driven, which is the third thing that I look for. So bottomless ham. And then, you know, was there a seismic shift? Did everything change overnight in some area of business? But some specific category hasn't caught up yet. And the, the seismic shift is the rise of cloud software and the area that hasn't kept up is procurement. So those three things kind of clicked for me and I quit. I gave notice the day those layoffs happened. And I was like, I want to be the reason this never happens again. And that was, you know, what led me to start Tropic. I went and found, found Justin, we had coffee and the rest is history. <clears throat> so how'd you get started in terms of, you know, building out the platform and landing those first customers that were the early adopter types? Yeah, so I really favor execution over strategy. The Frank Slubin's book, Amp It Up, puts that really beautifully. That's one of his core tenants. And he's IPO three tech companies, three of the most successful IPOs in history. So if he's doing it, uh, I'm going to do it too. And it seems like the right thing to do. So what I mean by that is we have an idea of the core platform and it's changed a lot. There is this you know feature that we wanted to build that was like programmatic negotiation, uh, this super bait, like overbaked uh, area of the platform that nobody adopted that we wound up killing. But I built a prototype for that in Excel with like 10,000 lines of macro code written behind it. And I was literally, that was where I was up for several days. I was literally Googling what is the macro code for blank. And I made this uh, Excel file that looked and felt exactly like a SaaS platform. It even had 
you know, password protection. It had reporting. It was pretty wild, actually. It didn't look like an Excel file at all. And we just started, you know, I built that in a couple of days and then we started giving it to people and getting the feedback. So it was like a design prototype that also worked. Um, and we just started signing up as many companies as possible. And I think one thing that was very important to us in those days is we don't actually know the mission yet. We know the vision. The vision is procurement paradise. That's something that's never changed. It's consumer grade procurement experience, modern procurement experience, uh, where the buyer is every bit as empowered as the seller when it comes to data and technology. So that's always been the vision. What's step one? Really, really hard question to answer. Most founders think that they know step one and they're totally wrong. It takes a while to find product market fit. So instead of pouring a bunch of concrete and building a bunch of software, we did super lightweight stuff, forms that we could get feedback on, Excel files we could get feedback on. And we just started getting it into the hands of as many companies as possible. So we were like, doing sales pitches to close people onto a free, a free product, right? And the goal was get as much feedback as you possibly can, have as many conversations as you possibly can, and then you'll figure out what the mission is. So that's what we did. Um, that was how we you know, started. We didn't have any funding. Uh, eventually we did raise some capital on that uh, Excel prototype because we'd gotten enough traction just with the prototype, but it required really significant changes required killing that feature that I thought was going to be so great. Um, so I think it's really important in those early days, if you have other founders listening in, like, do not fall in love with your own idea. Do not believe that the first thing you thought of is correct. Just get out there and execute and get people using it and they will tell you what it needs to be. So that was very, very important to our strategy. When did you finally hit that, um, not product, well, I guess product market fit, but that real like acceleration point in your business because you know you have raised, you did a $25 million series A and then like six months later, you did a 40 million series B, which tells me investors were like, throw more gas on this fire because it's taking off. <laughs> yeah, uh, it really clicked. So the, the two like most destructive events that have probably caused the biggest headwinds for most companies have both been tailwinds for us. The first was, COVID-19 and the second was what I want, I heard the other day, someone called the Sassacre of 2022 valuations plummeting, right? So COVID-19 was the first springboard for our business. And it was when we really realized that we were close, but not quite uh, on phase one of the mission. The close part was the software platform. The not quite part was this automated negotiation. What people really wanted was for us to negotiate. And that came to a head basically overnight because a lot of the companies we were working with were like, we love working with you guys. Like we're excited to manage things on Tropic. We need to renegotiate all of our contracts right now. We just cut our, you know, half our sales team. Like we're trying to free up budget anywhere because we don't know when this COVID thing is going to be over. Uh, do you ever help companies renegotiate contracts? Uh, and would you guys do that yourselves? And, you know, I think we got that question the, the first two times someone asked me that, I was like, I'm sorry, that's not exactly what we do. And the third time I was like, absolutely. Because I realized there's a signal here. Like you have to listen for that signal. And enough companies were asking that it was like, this is signal, not noise. We need to lean into this. And then, you know, six months later, we'd closed a million dollars in that first six months. And, uh, you know, we've only grown since then. We've tripled the business year over year, every year since then. So I think that that was the pivotal moment you know, adding the services offering to this technology platform that we had was a huge unlock for us and a hockey stick moment in terms of our growth. Is the culture of software pricing starting to change? You know, because you, you would think about more the enterprise software would be like, you know, so much elasticity in their pricing that when it was the end of the fiscal year, that's when people would know like now's the time to buy because they're going to be the most lenient or, you know, like, so is it starting to change as far as that mentality or? Uh, I would say that it is. And like, so it's changing in a couple of places we call this price integrity. Some companies have remarkable price integrity, 100% adherent, same pricing all the time. Figma is an example of this. Zapier is an example of this. Everyone buying those tools is getting a good price because the price is very consistent across the board, Right. And I believe that that is a necessary change in this ecosystem that we will see 100% whether Tropic is driving it or not. We do happen to be driving that change, but regardless, it's going to happen because it happened to flights, it happened to books, it happened to everything else, right? Like it happened to cars with TrueCar and our first 
uh, our first deck for, you know, the pre-seed round of friends and family was true car for SaaS, where, you know, bringing transparency to the economics of your SaaS pricing actually creates more demand for your product because the market is so burned by this, you know, for lack of a better term, used car sales experience that they're getting from software companies. And I think that software has disrupted every other category, just not software, right? Like there's software for true car giving you price points on cars. Uh, there isn't, there isn't yet software giving you price points on software. And I think it's because until very, very recently, you know, again, I think early 2022, the software businesses had all of the leverage. Um, everything was about sell, 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 sell. Now it's about buy, save, efficiency. The CFO is in charge. The sea change that we kind of were hoping for in this industry is now happening. We're not, we were never hoping for layoffs. We were never hoping for all the hard times that so many of my friends' companies are going through, but we were hoping for transparency. And I think that there is a compelling market force now driving that uh, because the CFO is really in the driver's seat at so many different companies. And, uh, you know, I've, I have been, I, I will say for, uh, you know, for the sake of disclosure and, and, and being totally above board and ethical, which we are, and it's an essential part of our culture, everything that we do is 100% legal compliant, any way that you could think of it with, uh, with modern pricing conventions. But that being said, if somebody ever got upset, you know, I'm asked like, you know, what if like one of these giant enterprise software companies got upset with how you guys are approaching procurement? What if they didn't want so much transparency being brought to this ecosystem? You know, what if they chose to sue you for this? And my answer to that has across the board been like, I would love to have my day in court around this. I would love for that to be a headline. That would and be would great for marketing for you. <laughs> that's the best PR imaginable. And I would love to, in a court of law, say like, why do we think that it's ethical that companies that are selling goods to consumers uh, make the price of those goods illegal to share and illegal to know? Uh, I can't think of any other thing that we buy that's like that, um, where it's you know illegal to tell your friend you know what you bought your iPhone for, um, and you can get sued. That that to me is just like very legacy, outdated modality. And I think that the modern, you know, millennial business users and Gen Z business users just won't tolerate the cloak and dagger stuff anymore. So I, I think we're definitely seeing a change as far as pricing goes. So what's the the current state of the business? You talked about, you know, we already talked about your funding a little bit. Uh, you said you were about three hundred employees. Like anything else you can share, or like what's next? Yeah, so we are, this is actually the best year that Tropics ever had across, you know, all of our core SaaS metrics, efficiency, retention, growth, you name it. We have, you know, consistently, we don't disclose revenue publicly, but we've consistently tripled our revenue every year since we founded. So you can imagine uh, that we're now pretty far up there as a growth stage company in terms of revenue. And, you know, we have a very clear plan uh, for where we want to be. We're We're focused on getting to $100 million and doing it profitably. And, you know, we're well on our way as far as that journey goes. So that's that's the core focus from like a business health and metrics standpoint. Uh, as far as product goes, you know, the vision remains unchanged, procurement paradise. And that means looking holistically at this entire workflow, looking at adjacent workflows and SaaS management, cloud management, you know, budgeting and various functions that kind of get rolled up into procurement and figuring out how do we build the most inclusive platform that we can for companies that want it all in one place, while at the same time nurturing partnerships for all of the relevant players that surround us for companies that don't want it all in one place, right? So uh, we have a very, very robust product roadmap as far as that goes. And our general product strategy, uh, which, you know, it's interesting. I was looking recently at our um, Series A fundraise deck and it was like it almost insane in its ambition. It was like, here's eight products. We're going to build all eight of these products in the next 12 months. And all the all the investors that passed were like, you're not going to do that. Like you don't, no one does that. Like what you need to do is find the one thing you're good at and focus on that. And we we're like, that's not who we are. Our thing is build as much as we possibly can so that we have optionality in how we go to market and how we partner. And specifically so that the CFO who wants to rationalize can do that. If you can do the work of four different platforms on one platform with Tropic, you might be able to save 500 to you know a million dollars if you're if you're being smart about it, right? So the good news is we did that. We built all eight of those products that were in that Series A deck, and you can see kind of what we're doing across our website. But we're focused on many stages in the process, 
and our go forward product strategy will continue to be building lots of different products at once. Um, that's kind of tenant one, tenant two is really activating this data set that we have. We've seen billions and billions of dollars of spend, 15,000 suppliers, uh, you know, I don't even know, hundreds of thousands of transactions, so much insight and information just by sitting where we sit that I believe that there's tremendous value and all kinds of diverse products locked up in that data set. And our mission in the next three and six months is going to be to unlock it. Now you're continuing to grow the team at, at Tropic. So what are the, the functional areas that you're going to be hiring for and which have been the hardest to, to find you know good matches? Yeah, so we're we're basically hiring across the board. Um, we're most especially hiring on the engineering side. We're leaning really heavy into product and engineering. Uh, that's the hardest thing is that we never have enough people to build, but like we always have to make uh, really difficult trade-off decisions on what we need to do with our roadmap, and it's heartbreaking at times, but you have to do it. So uh, hiring on on that side of the house is really really key. I think that we've learned a lot about hiring and go-to-market teams too. Uh, it took a while, candidly, for us to get marketing right. We, have, we now have an amazing marketing leader. We've had amazing people in the marketing leadership position before, just not for exactly the kind of marketing that we need. And that's like, I've learned something that most founders really struggle with is like, what is the kind of marketing that your company needs that's going to make your company successful? And who is the best person to deliver that kind of marketing? Because you could have a brilliant genius level marketer in another area and totally miss the mark because it doesn't align with exactly the kind of marketing your company needs. And I think that uh, another thing that we've learned is early on, I think we thought that the sales team, for instance, was going to be very high volume hires. People with relatively little experience could come and step into the position and do a good job. We've since found, especially as we move up market, that the real product that's required here is extremely complicated. And we just rolled out pricing and packaging that made our product five times more complicated because there's such a wide range of variability in the different stages of development of the procurement process a different customer might be. So we found that hiring a smaller number of the best sales reps on the planet actually achieves significantly better outcomes, significantly more efficiently, even if it's going to take you, you know, three months longer than you wish to hire every single person, right? So uh, those are some of the learnings we've had on the hiring side. We we set a really, really, really high bar. Um, you know, I tell candidates, they're like, you know, what should I know about Tropic? I tell them this is a very intense company. Uh, it's fun. There's good culture. And like, we're all in this thing together and we're all aligned to the mission, but it's really, it's really intense. And like some people are looking for a really intense company and other people are not. And I, I think that the more we embraced that early on and more we kind of accepted that this is who we are and that while we need to improve our work-life balance and we are focusing on that, we also know that we're never going to be at 100% on work-life balance because it's not the culture that we have here. So embracing the intensity, embracing seniority, these levers have unlocked, you know, really, really amazing people um, for Tropic. And they've also helped, I think, a lot of people realize very early, actually, I don't want to work there. That's not what I'm looking for, uh, which for us is a, a good outcome for everyone, right? So what was the, the lessons on, in the marketing function that you learned? Like what what has what works? Like what wasn't working? What works now? Yeah, so early on, we thought because we had no marketing for way too long. And our primary competitors invested in marketing early. We had, I would say, a much better product. We would win, you know, eight or nine out of 10 deals every time we were facing off with a competitor. But their marketing was so much better than ours. So I was like, as a consequence of being late to the marketing party, uh, people don't know who we are. So what I thought we needed, and I thought all we needed was brand marketing. I was like, let's invest heavily in brand marketing. Let's invest heavily in PR um, let's invest heavily in channels that are just going to raise awareness about us so that we can kind of have a seat at the table. And that was, in hindsight, exactly the wrong strategy because the way that you raise the right kind of awareness is you execute flawlessly on your product. You execute flawlessly on your customer success. Uh, you just do an incredible job. And then people start to talk about you organically. And that's when you can then go back and capitalize on it. You can't just you know, hack your way into, you know, a front page on TechCrunch type article, right? So um, so that was something that we missed. And, and what I've learned also is that 
brand marketing is much better for us when it's free, actually. That that uh, you know LinkedIn post that I did on my history with addiction, I wasn't expecting much from that. And it got, you know, three and a half million impressions. It got, wow. I don't know, tens of thousands of comments, right? Like that, you know, one thing that I did that took me five minutes to do did more for us in PR than any amount of money ever did in the previous two years. So it just really shifted my mindset on which channels we should be focusing on. And like, lo and behold, the channels that are really working for us are actually the bread and butter type channels. You know, we're advertising on LinkedIn, we're doing events, we're doing, you know, marketing 101 type stuff. I think that uh, early on, I thought we need to disrupt, you know, marketing. We need to do this totally differently. Being, you know, creative writer, I'm always like, how do we burn down the traditional thing? And lo and behold, the traditional thing was actually what we needed all along, right? So um, now what we say in those channels can be innovative. And what I write about on LinkedIn can be innovative. And like, we can innovate that way, but we don't need to reinvent the wheel on marketing channels and attribution and investments. There's a playbook that works. And, you know, if you're a founder listening to this and starting a company early on, first of all, don't spend a penny on marketing until you have product market fit. And once you do, do the basics first, like the fun, splashy PR, all that stuff comes later. Well, good segue. So uh, there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are raising capital and, you know, there was going to be like the series a crunch and then the series b crunch now it seems like all stages have crunch so uh what advice would you have for founders who are out there trying to raise capital in this market yeah so i think first and foremost it's important to ask yourself why you're raising the capital right do you need this capital to survive um or is this rainy day capital or are you just getting off the ground and you want to be able to pay yourself some money um in most cases if you're not raising capital to survive, then don't raise capital uh, unless it's easy for you to raise it. It's easy for you to raise it if you have the perfect mix of metrics. Uh, at the seed stage, they want to see $400,000 in revenue is what I'm hearing recently. At the Series A stage, they're going to want to see $1 or $2 million in revenue. And the days of kind of raising on a compelling story are, are not, they're behind us. They'll come back, but they're behind us right now. They need to see real hardcore revenue. And you know, I was talking to a company the other day that's been trying to raise a seed round that has an out, absolutely outstanding product, just doesn't have the $400,000 in revenue yet. And I told them like, don't talk to VCs right now. Just don't do it. Like don't talk to VCs until it's going to be easy. Go talk to your angel network, you know, go talk to people that do believe in you and do believe in your story and don't need the metrics because seed funds do need those things now, right? Series A funds definitely need those things right now. So, you know, figure out why you want to raise. If you are trying to raise so that you can pay yourself, um, do you have the money to not pay yourself? Because if you can not pay yourself and continue doing what you're doing and you can get by for the next six to 12 months, that's what I would do. I would invest all my time, you know, don't take any pay paycheck. I didn't get paid for the first, you know, six months of Tropic uh, and build the thing that's going to make the money that's going to enable you to raise. That's what I would focus on. I, you know, don't, don't get bogged down in like trying to get an office space and, you know, all that all that stuff. Those are luxuries that um, we, we don't get to have in 2023. Uh, the other thing that I would say is like, if you need the money and you can raise, uh, raise like stop worrying about valuation. I know a lot of companies who are like, I don't want to raise a down round. I don't want to do a bridge. And, you know, from, from where I'm sitting, I've talked to so many of these companies and I've seen because of the work we do at Tropics, so many companies fail. Like we see things just drop off a cliff for these companies that our customers are trying to buy. And, you know, at the end of the day, your valuation only matters as much as your exit, right? So like you're going to IPO, you're going to sell, you're going to do something, maybe even secondary, whatever you want to do. None of those things can happen if you die, right? So I would say, it, you know, that we don't need to be cute about valuations anymore. Honestly, if that's what you're, you're, up, you're up against right now, that valuation was probably inflated and unrealistic to begin with, especially if you raised in 2022. So Take what you can get, get the money, survive, invest, enable yourself to keep hiring. And uh, and your exit, you know, your exit will be your exit wherever it is. I wouldn't worry so much about valuations nowadays. That's such great advice. Yeah, because valuations were just out of control. It was extraordinary. So you got to hit the reset button and like yep. you said, keep your company going. Yep. All right, what are the top three apps you can't live without? Uh, 
honestly, these are not revolutionary. I'm not a big, this is going to sound crazy. I'm not a big software guy. I don't actually embrace that much software in my life. Um, maybe I get enough of it at work. I run my entire life out of Microsoft OneNote, which is not an especially good application. Like mm -hmm. I'm sure the native, you know, Apple Notes is just as good. It's, you know, it doesn't have any bells and whistles. I just, the key is like leveraging it with intention. Like it's very important to me uh, to have to-do lists every day. I do a gratitude list every single morning. Um, you know, I have you know my grocery list, whatever, right? Like I, lists are how I do everything. They're how I set the strategy of tropics. So I do all of that from OneNote. Um, Headspace. Headspace is an app that I can't live without. Um, bringing mindfulness into my life has made me a better leader, a better partner, a better father. Like every aspect of my life has gotten better with the application of mindfulness. And what I love about Headspace is it kind of delivers mindfulness to you the way you as a founder or an employee at a fast-paced tech company need it, which is bite-sized, right? And guided. You know, I can't, for, for where my spirituality is right now at this point in time, I can't sit in a silent meditation retreat with like singing bowls. I just can't do it. I'm my head is flying into outer space in 30 seconds. So having someone's voice just kind of grounding me in the moment um, has proven to be extremely, extremely helpful. And then, sorry, these answers kind of suck, but these are the truth. Um, I'm really into the health app also. So like I'm tracking progress against my goals in OneNote. Health app, again, I did, I'm sure there's way better apps for this, than, but this is the one that I have on my phone. Um, it's very important to me to constantly see progression and, you know, I love seeing progression in my resting heart rate, my resting heart rate. I love seeing progression in the milliseconds that my foot is touching the ground when I'm running. And I love seeing progression in my VO2 max. So it's like, it's good validation because I spent a lot of my time in long distance running. That's one of my big passions. And like that, like work, like everything else, uh, the payoff, you know, the payoff for launching a company, for instance, really the payoff is like, we sell or we IPO someday, years after the launch, right? So if all you're focused on is that, or if you're training for a marathon like I am today, and all you're focused on is, you know, the time that you get in that marathon, it's not till October, life loses meaning. Everything is failure. You don't have wins ever, right? So I need to have a hundred small wins every single day. And the health app gives me those small wins as I become healthier and faster. And, you know, OneNote gives me those small wins as we you know, do the little things that are the steps that are on the critical path to $100 million in ARR and profitability. And, you know, that that's how I use the apps. And like one, not the question that you asked, but one piece of advice that I give to anybody listening to this is like, find a way to get points on the board today, because if you're waiting for the seismic shifts that may never come, um, you're in for a world of hurt. So those were very interesting answers. The ones that I get that are usually like, oh, seriously, it's like, uh, Gmail, calendar, Slack, and <laughs> those are the most generic ones. Um, but another comment. So the health app, even though that thing's on my phone, I did not know nearly an ounce of how much value that thing had until literally like three, four weeks ago, I was away on vacation with my, so my wife's brother and his family and her whole extended, her whole, you know, my in-laws and everything. And he was just being competitive. Like how many steps did you do today? I'm like, oh, you know, whatever. And then he's like, started asking me other things. I'm like, where are you finding this data? And, and I started looking through and I'm like, this is amazing how much that health app has from your balance, like, like your stride, did, like all these things that he's like, so what's your, your balance number or whatever that's, that was. So we're just being competitive on all these different obscure metrics. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, you can, you can actually go very deep in there. The show all health data thing, right? There's a lot there's a lot in there. And, uh, and yeah, it's, you know, it, what I love about it is like one of those numbers is trending in the right direction guaranteed. So if you go through enough numbers, you're going to find something that's improving and, you know, that gives you worth. That's how I get it. Self-worth is like small improvements. Right. So, um, I get a lot of value out of that app for that reason. All right. How's the band? Yeah, it's good, man. Um, yeah, we're, uh, you know, all of us who are in this band have been in a million bands and, we're all old now. Um, I'm 35 and I'm the youngest guy in the band and like old relative to being in our early twenties, which is when we used to play together. I know these guys from, I lived in uh, the Jersey shore for a couple of years and I played in bands with these guys. And, uh, but it's just a beautiful outlet. Um, we're slower than we used to be because back then, 
like I said earlier, we thought this was going to be our thing, right? Like we're going to make money for this and that's going to be, you know, I thought I'd be a writer, professional musician. Now it's decidedly not going to be our thing. And because the pressure is alleviated, we can just have fun. You know, we've been together two and a half years. We played one show so far, put an album out. We're writing another album now. You know, we might play another show, might not, I don't know, but um, definitely the best drumming I've ever done because, you know, I've been applying that obsessive thinking to drumming in a way that I haven't historically. So we're having a lot of fun. All right. One last question. How do you balance it all then? Yeah. 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 Great, great question. So the, the honest short answer is I don't, I'm like always tweaking and recalibrating. I'm always working too much. You know, I don't have it all figured out. I don't think it's possible. Um, and I don't want to sacrifice any of my outlets. I don't want to stop playing in my band. I don't want to spend less time with my baby. I don't want to, you know, stop with the long distance running. And I certainly don't want to stop leading Tropic. So I think it's like, it's the old adage about filling the bucket. Like you get some big rocks and then you have sand, right? And like, if you put the sand in the bucket first and then you try to fit the big rock, it won't fit. If you put the big big rock first and then you fill around it with the sand, you can fit all of it in, in a manner of speaking, right? So for me, the biggest rock is family. Uh, I have a, a son who's 14 months old and like, I'm very, very aware in large part because of the mindfulness work that I've been doing. Like I'm very aware that this time is finite, right? Like he's only gonna be this age once um, and you never get it again. And every parent that I've ever talked to is like, be present, like you're going to blink and it's going to go by. And I'm like, I just don't want that to be my story. I don't want to miss six months of my kid's life because while I'm holding him, I'm checking my email. So I'm very dialed in with him. And that means that, you know, I wake up with him every other day around six and we hang out until, you know, whatever, eight, and then I start working. And it also means that my five to 7 p.m. time is sacred time every day because that's the only time I have with him before bed. Now, that doesn't mean that I work less. That's just me putting the big rock in. So now to put the sand in, it's like, well, that means I got to send my first email at 5 a.m. I got to send my last email at midnight, you know, like, and stretch the limits of like what my working hours are to accommodate this family time. So it's just, a, I think that the idea of having um, specific time, like blocks of like, you know, I'm going to work from like eight to six or eight to seven, like I used to, that's gone. And instead, it's like, I'm going to accomplish the same work, if not more, it's just going to be chopped up and wrapped around all the other stuff that I do. And then, you know, I have like the mornings that I'm not with the kid or the mornings I run. And then every Sunday, I have four hours where I'm totally dark and that's band practice. So you just, you know, you figure out what's most important to you and, you know, what you don't want to regret missing if the plane starts crashing. And then you put that stuff first and you build around it. That's kind of how I do it. <clears throat> Great, great advice. Well, David, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously, all the you know great advice you shared along the way, and obviously all the great work that the uh, you and the team at Tropic are up to. Awesome, yeah. Th thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Keith. And uh, yeah, I'll uh, I'll I'll tune in and listen to subsequent episodes. Glad uh, that, glad that we're connected. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.